Okay, it's going to be a great week ahead. I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to the Eve of Christmas Eve service. In our family, we actually, if it makes it easier for you, we call that the Christmas Adam uh, service, because Adam and Eve, but we, uh, Adam came first. Uh, yes, I don't even think I came up with that, and I'm the dad, but we do call it the Christmas Adam service. You can invite people to that. It's going to be, um, we're going to look at the incarnation of Christ, so uh, please be praying. That's such a deep thought, and I hope we are stunned by it, and we're going to have a candlelight, a little candles and all of that, which is, uh, which is fun. We're excited about that, and then next week, uh, one of my uh, good friends from South Africa is here, uh, who's the pastor of the church that uh, I pastored in South Africa, and he's going to preach uh, next Sunday. So that is going to be a treat as well. But today we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke. So if you'll take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 7, uh, we are going to be looking at verses 24 through 28 again. Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 24 through 28. And I know we kind of went... Uh, through these verses last week, but we looked at verses 24 through 35, so a little bit of a a longer section, because I wanted to try to get at the heart of what Jesus is intending to communicate to the people listening back then, which was uh, basically a rebuke, uh, really, for their lack of faith, for their unbelief. Ultimately, that's why I think this text is here, to help us understand unbelief. But as Jesus makes this statement, this big statement about unbelief, he says something really remarkable about John the Baptist and about us that has some life-transforming implications that are maybe sort of easy to miss, and I don't want us to, to miss them, but they are sort of easy to miss. And so I want us to go back and look at these verses again today, and I'm actually going to try to do a little counseling, uh, group counseling, really. Maybe this is uh, less of a sermon and more counseling or, or meditating But I want us to think a little about how we evaluate our lives and what God is doing in this world, and maybe especially how we evaluate God's attitude toward us. How do we think about God's attitude towards us, how we have it? So if I sit down with you and I ask, how do you think about what God's doing in the world? And even feel, how do you feel? What do you feel? Like just generally, privileged or not privileged, Uh, like this is a a time when God is not doing much, or a time when God is doing a lot, or even, um, I think, more specifically, too, how do you think about your life, the way uh, God looks at you, what God is doing in, in your life and through you, fundamentally? Do you think you have reasons to be content or uh, discontent, Uh, blah, or excited? Because you do have a way you, you think about that, obviously. If you're human and you, you, you do have some sort of relationship with God, and you may even have a way you speak about that here at church, and then a, a way you think about it out there in everyday life that's different. I don't know, but that's not too uncommon to have a way you speak that's right in a way you feel or think that's different. Or maybe you have ups and downs. But we evaluate, we constantly evaluate what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives and what it means, and we kind of form opinions about God. He's far removed or he's close. 
he doesn't care or he, he cares so much. He hasn't done anything for me or he's done everything for me. And that evaluation has a lot of power over the way we think and over the way we feel and over the decisions that we make. You look at your life and you think, God doesn't care. I'm alone here. That has an impact. You look at your life and you think, I am so privileged. God has shown me so much love and care. That has an impact. We make evaluations and we make these evaluations based on something, obviously. It's not random evaluations. They're based on something. A few years ago, we were at a a party and someone saw Marta and all of our kids and we have a, a lot of kids. And she came up to Marta and said, I am so sorry for you. It was like, uh, hello, how are you? You know, usually that comes first, but that was pretty much the first thing she said and said, I am so sorry for you. And she said that because she looked at Marta and all those kids, and that's how she felt about Marta's situation. And of course, Marta felt very differently. She looked at those same circumstances, and she didn't even understand really how the person could say that. But of course, it's because they have a different way of evaluating. They're both looking at the same circumstances and their thoughts about those circumstances are completely different and the way they feel. And it doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances really. It has to do with their way of evaluating instead. We all have a way of evaluating like that. And not just family size, of course, but God and how God's supposed to work, and what God's doing in the world and in our lives. And those evaluations are based on something. And if what those evaluations are based on is not true, is not the way to make an evaluation, it's like the wrong grid or the wrong standard, obviously it's going to be a problem, right? What are some of the ways that's going to mess you up? We're going to maybe feel abandoned when we're not abandoned. Or we're going to be discontent when we should be content. And we're going to make choices. There's a lot tied to this. And so I want us to think about the way that we evaluate, truly evaluate. And specifically, I want to do that by, one, quickly looking at the way John evaluates what's going on with Jesus. And then especially, especially, and this is our focus, too, looking at the way Jesus evaluates what's going on with John the way John evaluates what's going on with Jesus and the way Jesus evaluates what's going on with John because Jesus responds to an evaluation that John's making in verses 18 through 23. He corrects it in a sense. And then he makes his own evaluation in verses 24 through 28 and especially verse 28 about John. And it's a really remarkable thing for Jesus to say. It's a really remarkable statement which illustrates in a big way that the way Jesus evaluates is so different than the way we normally would. Because how do we normally evaluate? Let's start there. Even before we look at what John says or what Jesus says, let's think about what we normally use to make a determination about having it good or having it bad or being privileged or not being privileged or having a reason to be content or a reason to be discontent or thinking God's doing a lot or thinking God's not doing anything. What do we normally use? It's not normally 
very complicated, I don't think. We normally evaluate God and our life and this world and Jesus and what he's doing through Jesus and what's going on by our circumstances. We use our circumstances as our grid. Do we like our circumstances? Then great. Go God. Do we not like our circumstances? Then bad. Do these circumstances make sense to us? Then good. Do these circumstances not make sense to us? Then bad. I wish I could could make it sound more profound than that. But a lot of times in real life, I don't think it is much more profound than that for a lot of us. We're usually pretty simple people. I mean, we could make a list even right now. When do we think God's working? When do we feel like God's not? And get real specific too. So imagine, say you you reach out to someone and you uh, invest in them and you spend a lot of time with them and then you find out they're liars. They were playing with you. They were pretending. God working, God not working. Or maybe bigger picture, something that seems totally different. But politics, how about this? Uh, your political party wins or your political party doesn't win. What's your take? You're looking at God with lots of questions, feeling like maybe he's forgotten what's going on down here. Or maybe uh, something more personal. You're, you do something, you're serving Jesus, and someone comes up after and gives you a lot of approval. You're really gifted, they say. Or maybe not. Maybe uh, you're with someone and their life seems to be so great. And uh, they seem to have such a better ministry than you and more of an impact on people's lives than, than you do. This is not a hard list, right? It's not hard to figure out when are we going to be tempted to think God's not doing anything through Jesus and when are we going to think he is? And to a certain extent, you can understand that. We're humans and it, it kind of seems human to look at life this way. In fact, even John the Baptist, think with me real quickly, again, real quickly about John the Baptist because we've done this, but think about John's evaluation in Luke 7, about what's going on with Jesus. That's our, our first point, if you'd like to write down points. John's evaluation of what's going on with Jesus. You remember in verses 18 through 23, John sent his disciples to Jesus because he was wondering whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And this was like a wobble for John, a moment. He had been so strong, but he just kind of wobbles here because he knew, I'm convinced, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he, he wanted assurance. And I don't think he wanted assurance because of a lack of information or a lack of God's work in his life, it was more because of his circumstances at that moment, because he was sitting in prison for confronting Herod. And that didn't seem to match up with how he thought God was supposed to be working. And not because prison life was so hard for John or something, this wasn't personal really, but instead because he was thinking that this was supposed to be a time of judgment on God's enemies. And so that's what he thought was supposed to happen. And so he's confused as he's evaluating Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing. And this is what I see happening. These are the circumstances. And he's like, I know there's an answer, but I can't quite understand how it all goes together. And so of course we know he, he goes to Jesus, which was the right thing to do. When your thinking doesn't seem to match up with Jesus's, go to Jesus. And John's in prison, so he can't go personally, but he sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. And Jesus is just so gentle, you know, in how he responds to John. John asks this question, and clearly Jesus understands the struggle. It's not like Jesus says, how could you think that? Or, 
or what's wrong with you, but John is wrong. And Jesus doesn't apologize and he doesn't change what he's doing. He's not like, okay. No, he just takes John back to scripture. Look again at what the Bible says and look at me and affirms that he's really, truly bringing salvation only in a different way than John expected, which of course is why John was still sitting in prison. Jesus doesn't get John out of prison. And so the answer for John wasn't going to be his circumstances changing, but trusting if he was going to make a right evaluation of what God was doing in the world at that moment, he was going to have to rely and evaluate things, not on his own interpretation of his circumstances, but Jesus's. You have to let Jesus interpret what God is doing in this world for you. What God is doing through Jesus right now is proclaiming the message of salvation for those who don't deserve it, not defeating all his enemies yet, not reversing the whole curse yet, not establishing his kingdom yet, not glory really yet. If the only way we think God is working in this world through Jesus is when we can see something really obvious and glorious and triumphant, like getting John out of prison, Herod being defeated, there are going to be a lot of times where we miss out on enjoying what God is doing in this world right now through Jesus. And that's going to be a big theme of Luke. This is the era of the cross. Glory and all that stuff is coming, but this is the era of the cross. And we're going to talk about that a lot more later. But it's important for us, maybe especially as Americans, to get our minds wrapped around the fact that John was sitting in prison while Caesar was sitting on his throne. And that the righteous person was looking weak while the wicked person was seeming to succeed. And the fact that Jesus wasn't taking out Caesar at that moment, and the fact that he was not at that moment delivering John from prison, didn't, doesn't say anything about Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus. And if you somehow did think that it meant something negative about Jesus, you would be making the wrong evaluation about Jesus. It didn't mean he wasn't accomplishing salvation at all. John's circumstances didn't really say anything about Jesus. Cross-like circumstances right now doesn't mean God isn't working through Jesus. In fact, that is how God says he is working through Jesus. And you know what? Cross-like circumstances, John's circumstances, not only didn't say anything about Jesus, also they didn't really say anything essentially about John either. And that in part, is verses 24 through 28, and now we're really getting to it. Our second point, first point, John's evaluation of Jesus. We see a little where he's potentially getting that wrong, or at least how he needs to be encouraged by Jesus. Now, second point, Jesus' evaluation of John, and this is where we, we see where a lot of us are going to get it wrong. Because while John sitting in prison caused him to ask some questions about what God was doing through Jesus, the reality is that his sitting in prison would cause a lot of people to ask some questions about what God was doing through John, especially in the ancient world. The ancient world didn't see people as equal. We, we say we do. We talk about equality, but they assumed inequality. They had a real hierarchy, and that hierarchy was based on power. Plato, in fact, said it was just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. And so John's being in prison meant in the ancient world that John was getting what he deserved. And I guess we think we've 
come a long way, but the truth is bad circumstances still often make people wonder. Does God love this person? Is God for this person? And I guess now we're getting a little more personal because I'm afraid that we're so used to judging everything by what's happening to us right now, whether we like our circumstances and whether we understand them, that it's not just the big picture of what God's doing through Jesus that we ask questions about. It's also ourselves and what God's doing in our lives, our relationship with God and his attitude towards us. And for some, this is a theological problem. And I don't think that's the case here at CBC, obviously. But for some, they base a whole false theology on this. And this is something we saw in Africa, for sure. A whole theology basically based on the idea that bad circumstances mean God's against someone. And good circumstances mean God's for them. And so like, you know, John being left in prison to be beheaded while really being faithful and important and dearly loved by God, a lot of people wouldn't even have a category for that because they got this theology where faith always equals breakthroughs and deliverances, real faith. And God's love always means good things right now. And so if someone really has enough faith, And if they're really right with God, then everything's always supposed to work out right now. They're supposed to be rich and everything's supposed to go great all the time. And that's how they judge even how they're doing spiritually. And again, I know that most of us would reject that theology intellectually, maybe. But in terms of how we feel and think, I wonder if it's not maybe a little more tempting than we sometimes admit to feel like if you're a believer and you're doing right things, and God is happy with you, then it's going to be obvious in terms of how your life plays out. And since we think so much in physical terms, that's kind of what we mean most of the time. Prayers answered the way I want them to be answered. Success, how I determine success. And it might not be the theology we hear at church, hopefully, but it's the theology we hear from the world all the time. The world's teaching a theology. They don't call it that, but it's a theology, and it's everywhere to the point where we almost automatically assume, if we're not working at it, we assume that we have the right to a life that's easy and comfortable and relatively pain-free, and that success And having it good is something that can be measured and clearly seen by the people around us. And so when we're serving God and our life gets harder and we feel weaker and we become more uncomfortable and experience pain even and doors get shut and prayers don't get answered the way we think they should and we don't see success, we wonder, is something wrong? You know, does God love me? Is God for me? Is he mad at me? Because I mean, look at my circumstances. How many counseling cases with people with good theology at church come down to that? A lot, which is why I think it's important we look at the way Jesus speaks here about John, almost as an illustration to to make a point. Because after dealing with John's doubts about Jesus in verses 18 to 23, Jesus turns to address any doubts the crowds might have had about John in verses 24 through 28. Luke says, When John's messengers had gone, verse 24, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And so that's the theme, John. If the theme that drove verses 18 through 23 was what John thought about Jesus, the theme that drives verses 24 through 28 is what Jesus thinks about John. And he definitely doesn't want us to get it wrong. 
because while John's current status was as a political prisoner, that status was no indication of his position before God. And so while from the outside, it might have looked like John was weak or unimportant, there was actually no one in history up to that point who had been more important than John. And if you look down at the text, Jesus is quite clear in verse 28. In fact, he says something a little bit shocking, I think. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And it's like, none greater. And so Jesus is looking at absolutely every single person who came before John. And he's God, so he literally knows everyone. And we're talking about some pretty amazing people because this is thousands of years of human history. And so this is including kings and emperors and writers and poets and prophets and musicians. And we're talking about big names in the Bible like Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel. You name the Old Testament saint, and there were a lot of them. And yet in Jesus's mind, none of them were greater than John, which is obviously saying something about John. And yet should also cause us to ask the question, why? I mean, why does Jesus think John is that important? What exactly is Jesus using to make this evaluation? He's making an evaluation, but what is he using to make that evaluation? Because again, it definitely wasn't John's present circumstances, if you know what I'm saying, because he's about to be beheaded. And obviously, this is proof that you can't evaluate God's attitude toward a person the way many people do. You can't evaluate by their present circumstances. That's the wrong measuring stick because here John is the single most important person who lived pre-Jesus, and yet he's sitting in a dungeon about to lose his head when Jesus says this. And so what is it that Jesus is using to make this evaluation if it's not what we typically use? I mean, you understand, it's like, let me show you a person who's really important to God and to God's plan. He's key. Here he is. He's about to be beheaded. He's beheaded. What? And it's hard for me to get this point across, really, exactly because we're so used to this kind of stuff in the Bible, maybe. But if this were happening to us, you know, you're sitting in prison for doing what's right while Jesus is out there. What would you be thinking? sitting there, waiting. For a lot of us, it doesn't take being about to be beheaded to cause us to become discouraged about what God's doing in our lives. Little bumps in the road start causing us to ask all kinds of questions. Partly, I think, because we're so used to basing what we think God's doing and God's attitude towards us on whether we like our circumstances or not when the standard Jesus uses is very different. And I'm not trying to make this easy because I know it's not. Things happen to me. My prayers don't get answered the way I think. It's hard. And God's not asking us not to feel or ever have questions, but we need to make sure we get our baseline right, what we use to evaluate. We want to look at life the way Jesus looks at life. And we can start to get an idea of what Jesus thought it meant to be privileged and blessed by looking at the way he describes the crowd's initial response to John. Because even though the people of Israel didn't get a lot of things right, at first, a lot of them did respond the way they should have to John. And Jesus wants them to think about what exactly made John so compelling in verse 24. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
No, obviously. And verse 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Again, it wasn't that because behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. And so Jesus is saying, if it wasn't a luxurious location or how much money John had that caused them to think he was significant, what was it? It was the role God had given him instead. And think about that, because I know we're tempted, if we're honest, to judge a person's importance or privilege even by where they come from or, or what they wear. It's amazing how superficial we can be. But according to Jesus, you need to understand, if that's how people were deciding who to listen to then, no one would have ever listened to the single most important person who ever lived on the planet to that point. Do you hear me? If it was about that, they never would have gone out to hear John. That's just not how Jesus thinks we should evaluate a person's privilege or status. And actually, even the Israelites, for all they got wrong, knew that. Verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet. And a prophet is someone who speaks for God, which is what made John's ministry compelling. It wasn't that he said what people wanted to hear or that he lived the lifestyle of the rich and famous. It was John's message that he spoke for God which made him so significant, which is right, of course, and the way it should be. And Jesus affirms the people's perspective on John and actually expands it, which is why he calls him the greatest, end of verse 26. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, and more than a prophet is such a significant statement, but it's about timing, basically, which Jesus highlights in the next verse, verse 27, when he says, this is he of whom it's written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And so you get an idea here how Jesus looks at the world and he's Jesus, so he's right. And this is how we should look at the world as well. Here it is. If you wanna understand what really matters, if you wanna understand privilege and what God's doing and how you have it, you need to start with the fact that God has a plan. I'm explaining now why Jesus thought John was so significant. What was behind that? And what was behind that is that Jesus knew history's not random. It's going somewhere. God is doing something. And the center of what God is doing focuses on Jesus. He is the one who changes the course of the entire world forever. And so as we pick up our Bibles and we read the first part called the Old Testament, it's long and there are a lot of pages, but all those pages tell a story that's intended to prepare us for the way in which God is gonna rescue the world through Jesus. And so that's what all those prophets were doing. You read about Isaiah and Malachi and Elijah, whoever, they weren't just there to help people live a little better life now and then die or to give some instructions. No, they had a purpose. They were part of a bigger plan. They were trying to get people ready for Jesus. And out of all those prophets who God raised up, there had to be one who would be chosen to be the prophet right before Jesus, the one who pointed directly at Jesus and said, this is the one God promised. And that prophet was John. And that's what made him so great. As someone explained, what made John Great was not his personal identity, but his special calling to prepare the way for salvation. What made John important was who Jesus was. Since Jesus was the Messiah, John was more important than just another prophet. He was the man promised to serve as Messiah's messenger. This made him the last and greatest prophet before Christ. The other prophets all looked for the Savior from a distance, but John saw him with his own two eyes. And what a privilege, right? 
And I think a real practical help as well, because imagine, say, you were sitting down in prison with John. Imagine. And John was feeling a little bit down because he's like, man, look where I'm living and look at what's happening in my life. How could you use this to encourage him? I think you would be like, John, man, I love you, brother. And this is hard. I I wouldn't want to be here. (laughs) But remember what God's doing. Like, step back and get the big picture because this moment in your life is just part of your life. God is actually saving the universe through Jesus. Think about that. And so for all these years, if you look at the big picture, we had sin just wrecking the world and causing death and decay and destroying relationships. And no matter how hard people have tried, there's never been anyone able to stop that or reverse it until here God sends Jesus. And that's the plan. He's going to defeat sin and death. And he's going to establish his rule in a new recreated universe with all the sin sucked out. And you, John, You, do you realize, you have had a key role in all that because you were the one chosen by God to point people to Jesus. And so, yeah, this moment is terrible and it's gonna get worse for you. And and, and it might cause you to to wonder because who wants to be stuck in this dungeon after all? I don't, I definitely don't. It's okay for it to be hard, but even though it's hard and you can be honest about that, be careful, John, not to start talking or thinking as if somehow God's forgotten you. Don't use the way the world evaluates things as your standard of success or greatness or privilege or blessing because all they have is now. That's literally all the good they have is what happens now when you and I both know there's a whole lot more than now going on in this world. There's a whole entire eternal future we're looking forward to. And so in the days to come, when you are there, John, when you're in that future and you're looking back, you will rejoice. You will be giving thanks for the special role that God gave you to play just because of how close you were able to be to to Jesus. With Jesus here evaluating, giving us his evaluation, it's kind of like we are having someone come from the future. Can you picture that? Someone coming from the future. And so he's seen the whole thing. He knows how it all turns out. And so because we're stuck in this one moment, we look at what's happening with John and we're like, oh man, why doesn't Jesus fix this? Why doesn't Jesus fix this? Why doesn't he go help? Does this mean God doesn't care about John? We've got all these questions. Of course, because we're limited, we're humans in this moment, but Jesus has come from the future. And so he knows the end. He knows where John is headed. And so he grieves for the way we're grieving and and the way we're struggling, but he's not responding the way we might because he's got this whole plan in front of him. And so he's able to look at John sitting in prison, about to be beheaded. And while the whole world is like, oh man, that's weakness, that's loss. Jesus is like, no, man, that is greatness. That is privilege. That is someone, when we look back, that people throughout history would be like, what a role, what an opportunity to be the one chosen, to be the person to point people to the one who was going to fix absolutely everything. And as Christians living in this world where everyone pretty much is talking about now and acting and thinking like people only matter if they have a lot or if they're from a certain place or they have a certain degree or they wear a certain kind of clothes or drive a certain kind of car, where some people even look at their own life and they're all discouraged as a result and they're like, does God even care about me? 
looking at this passage is, is just another reminder. That is the wrong standard to use if you're evaluating what really matters. Because I mean, if we used all those ways of evaluating to evaluate John, John would have been so discouraged. And I think it's so important for us to see that Jesus's standard is just so different because he doesn't evaluate things in terms of where a man is located or what a man has, but in terms of his place in God's great salvation plan. Which maybe you're thinking now is like, nice for John. Like, thanks for preaching a whole sermon on why John didn't have to be discouraged because he had such a great role in God's great salvation plan. But like, what about me? I'm not John the Baptist. And I'm glad you're saying that because if we look down at this passage, that's actually the whole point. It's the punchline. This whole time we've been looking at John and seeing Jesus turn things on their head and we're coming to realize that he didn't have it as bad as it might have looked at first in the big picture. And we're nodding our heads with Jesus and saying, okay, I see that, great for John. And Jesus looks back at us and says, no, actually, great for you. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Which is a comparison, obviously, of all the people who lived before Jesus during that time when everyone was anticipating the coming of Jesus, John was the greatest because he was the last prophet before Jesus. But that privilege which John had, which was tremendous, does not compare to the privilege and status and blessing even the newest, the weakest, the most insignificant Christian has who comes after Jesus and thus is part of the kingdom of God. That's what I think this statement basically means. Jesus has taken all this time to show us the greatness of John in order to show us exactly how good we have it. Being a Christian who is going to experience the kingdom of God is an even bigger blessing than being the last prophet whose job was to point people to Jesus. That's what's real. And ultimately, you need to use that to evaluate your life, not just how you feel in a certain moment. It's like you have to learn to locate yourself in this big story that God's telling. It's hard, but you have to get perspective. An illustration, a superficial illustration, but traveling, you get to see a whole lot of different kinds of lives, the way people are living all over this world. And you can imagine sitting with someone here in the United States who's discontent about not having some material possession maybe, and they're really feeling it, you know? And it's so hard for them. And you don't wanna deny that they feel like it's hard, but at the same time, you might wanna somehow graciously encourage them to just think about where they are and what they enjoy. And that's so small because that's material, but sp spiritually, we need to do that. If we think about the story that God's telling, because all those people who lived before Jesus, they were living in the time of promise where things were being explained and revelation was being given and the stuff was being put in place so that they could understand what God was gonna do through Jesus, where we now, those of us after Jesus, we're living in the time of fulfillment. 
at least the beginnings of it. We're not all the, there, all the way there yet, but the final sacrifice has been offered and death has been defeated, essentially. And a, a lot of what the Old Testament believers were hoping for, we're looking back on. Like we've got the spirit of God. We've got all these blessings and we understand what they were struggling to understand as they read the prophets. And this is big, the revelation we have. I mean, listen to the way Jesus puts it in Luke 10. 23 and and 24, Luke writes, then turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And I don't think he's just talking about the disciples there, though obviously they were in a special moment for sure, but we've got this revelation too. And we've got the spirit and actually we have more than they had at that particular moment because we have the entire New Testament. And so I know we've got this whole world telling us the most precious thing is to have stuff and money and be comfortable and have people's approval and go on nice vacations and have freedom and, and, but the reality is the most precious thing in the world is to know truth, to have the truth of what God is doing through Jesus. And if we just take a moment and compare ourselves to prophets and kings and other great men down through the ages, we locate ourselves in history where we are right now, we will see that we are currently experiencing a level of knowledge they longed to have, longed to have. I like the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And this has always been one of my favorite passages because Peter's talking about the salvation God's brought through Christ. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquired, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them. Come on, listen to this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And really, he's just affirming what Jesus said to his disciples and the point he was making about John. But just imagine this room. Imagine this room filled with some of the greatest heroes throughout church history pre-Jesus. And so we've got Moses and Abraham and and Joshua and Daniel all sitting at one table and and kings and prophets, David and Elijah sitting over there. And you walk in and you're feeling a little intimidated, maybe. Like, how did I get the invitation to this men's breakfast? Like, what am I doing here? Because these guys had it so good. Maybe you start wanting to take selfies with some of them to post on Facebook, like, look at who I met. When you feel this hand on your shoulder and you turn around and you're like, oh, it's Peter. No way. It's Peter. And Peter looks at you and he's saying, I know you're excited. And that's great. This is fun. But I just want to make sure you realize that all these men you see here long to know and to experience what you have experienced. And when they went to God and asked for more information, God, please reveal 
who the Messiah is and when he's coming, God told them they were serving not themselves, but their ministry was for the purpose of serving you instead, which is heavy and shows the value of the revelation we've been given in Christ. And yeah, I think if we were sitting there all those years ago with John in that prison and he was really struggling and we had our arm around him, we'd be like, this is tough, I know. But remember how much revelation you have. Remember that angel who showed up and and talked to your dad in the temple. Remember how you were filled with the Holy Spirit from your mother's womb. Remember what you got to do, how you got to baptize Jesus. That That was pretty sweet. But you know, if we turn the tables and maybe we're discouraged as we look at our life and we start to feel sorry for ourselves, you can imagine John the Baptist coming and sitting there with us and his arm around our shoulder saying, I know this doesn't feel great, but man, think about all the stuff you get to know and that you get to experience. Even if you just compare with John, John saw the beginnings of Jesus's ministries but he didn't get to know about Jesus's death and resurrection the way you do. He never learned about Jesus ascending into heaven and being exalted to God the Father's right hand the way you have. It's more kind of like he had the problem and you have the solution. And so he didn't have the four gospels telling him the whole story of Jesus's life. And he didn't have all these New Testament letters like we've been given where God inspired men to explain what was happening through Jesus and unpack for him what was actually happening up there on the cross. And he wasn't given the privilege of being part of the church where God gifted preachers and teachers to explain God's word for him. He never even heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. And he certainly never heard what Jesus had to say about the second coming. And so while John could say a lot of great things about Jesus, there's a lot that you know that if you met John, you would have to graciously and lovingly explain to him. Like about non-Jews being part of the kingdom. Like about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because God's revealed certain truths in the New Testament that for a long time he kept hidden. Truths like the incarnation God becoming man, like the indwelling of Christ in us. And we could go on and on. So as John MacArthur says, here was John without all these mysteries being revealed. Didn't see the cross, didn't see the resurrection, didn't see the ascension, didn't see the sending of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church, didn't see the power of the movement of the gospel, didn't even have the full gospel, didn't understand Israel's unbelief, Gentile salvation, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, didn't understand that the Messiah spiritually was gonna dwell in the life of every believer, didn't understand the unfolding, escalating mystery of lawlessness, didn't understand the rapture, didn't understand how everything was gonna move toward a consummation, summing up everything in the glory of Christ, and he didn't understand the whole theology of justification by the death of Jesus Christ. He couldn't understand it because he didn't know there was a cross in the plan. And here we are, we understand fully the depravity of man. We understand the full meaning of Jesus's life and death. We understand that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We understand all that. We can preach the cross. We can preach the resurrection. We know that no one can be saved if they don't confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. We have a clear understanding of death. We have a clear understanding of divine judgment. We have a clear understanding of heaven and hell. All of that, which is only vague in the Old Testament. We understand the full gospel, justification, saved from the penalty of sin, sanctification, saved from the power of sin, glorification, saved from the presence of sin. We understand the sweep of the gospel. We know the word of God that the apostle says can make us wise unto salvation. 
We have the mind of Christ, the mind of God in its fullness. The reason that we're in the kingdom of God in its fulfillment age is greater than John is not because our personal character exceeds his or our personal influence exceeds his, but because of our privileged revelation. John knew Jesus was the Messiah. We know a lot more than that, a lot more. And I just think it's important that we enjoy it. We need to look at our lives and think about our lives and the world and what God's done for us the way Jesus does. So I'm not saying we don't get discouraged or have questions, but deep down, we have to remember what's real. We have to remember what's real. My father was in the hospital again uh, last week, and I've told some of you this, but he had been there for about two weeks. And my daughter, Cambria, was with him. She's still in South Africa, and he was on a lot of medicine. And so there were times where he didn't even really know she was there. Um, and it was hard for him, for sure. And it was hard for him to even think clearly. He's 87 in the hospital. <laughs> it's normal. But Cambria was telling me one day, as she was sitting there, he was preaching to himself. He didn't even realize she was in the room. And uh, she didn't think he was actually fully awake. But he was still preaching. Actually, his little finger was writing the sermon as he was speaking. And he says, he says, Wayne, that's his name, Wayne, you can't just listen to yourself. Sometimes you're thinking and you have to say, no, that thought is not real. <laughs> I might feel like it's real, but just because I feel like it's real doesn't mean it's real. What's real is what God says is real. And so I have to say, no, that's not true. This is what's true. And life gets so hard sometimes. You're going to have to learn to be able to do that in your sleep when you're filled with drugs at the hospital and 87 years old. You don't want to lie and, and act like it's easy or that's where you want to be. But at the same time, you can't evaluate your life and God's attitude towards you and your privilege the way everyone else does. You have to make sure you're using the same standard to evaluate your life and what God's doing through Jesus that Jesus does. Because if you use that standard, you are privileged, no matter what your present circumstances are. I mean, again, if, if you somehow met the person who was the most important person who ever lived in the history of the universe, and he was discouraged, what would you say to him? And Jesus looks at those of us who are Christians and says, we are even more privileged than him. And I'll tell you, if I were Satan, I wouldn't want you to know that. I wouldn't want you to enjoy that. Satan does not want you to think that God's been good to you. But how's he gonna get you to doubt that, you know? Because at first it kind of seems impossible. Like how could you keep someone from being excited about knowing where the whole universe is headed? And how could you keep someone from being thrilled that they have a right relationship with the God who created everything? And how could you keep someone from really enjoying the fact that God became man to die for them? It seems almost impossible. But I think a good way to start would be to change the way he measures what really matters. I think you'd have to do everything in your power to keep him from seeing what's eternal. 
So everywhere he goes, everyone he talks to, you would want it to be all about now until the now becomes his new standard for what's really valuable. And he starts thinking that you can measure a person's privileges not by his relationship with Christ and the spiritual blessings he has in Christ, but instead by his current circumstances, which is not and cannot be how we as Christians evaluate life. If we're gonna make the right evaluation of what God is doing in the world and in our lives, we're gonna have to learn to trust not our own personal evaluation of our circumstances, but Jesus's. You have to let Jesus interpret your world for you. And here's a place to start. If you're a Christian, Jesus says, you are extremely privileged. So much so that he can look at John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and say, you actually have it better because you have what's most valuable, what's most precious. And that's not having the most comfortable circumstances, but knowing the truth about what God's doing in this world through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. You know us, and you know that so often we are really conformed to this world. And we try to be really profound and really deep, but when we look at our lives and the way we respond, we are really tempted to respond and evaluate things the, the way everybody else does. Our circumstances are good, yay. Our circumstances are bad, oh no. Lord, we're humans. We're living now, we have limited knowledge, we're weak. But you've given us so much. And you've shown us a whole new way to look at this world. And please, as we come to church, as we sing these songs, as we celebrate Christmas, all this, as we celebrate communion, Lord, please change the way, the baseline that we use to evaluate our lives and help us to know, to really know deep down, no matter what, how good you've been to us. And we pray this in Jesus, your name. Amen.